Hello, hello. I am back in my office. <clears throat> Got my coffee right here. It's a cold morning here in Knoxville. And uh, last time we did a little bit of a historical introduction. It might have been boring for you. I don't know. But today, this time, I want to begin looking at uh, reform theology a little bit more directly. Specifically, we're going to begin today by talking about the five points of Calvinism. And the five points have been framed uh, in a nice a little acrostic, which is called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Those, those all stand for a different point in this kind of theological framework. But it's interesting, the first and the fifth point have to do with you, it has to do with mankind, the T and the P. The second point has to do with God the Father and his role in salvation. The third point, the L, has to do with God the Son and his role in salvation. And then the I, the fourth point, has to do with God the Holy Spirit and what he does. So in some ways you could say the five points of Calvinism are a theological discussion on Trinitarian salvation that is bookended with how that affects you as a person. So today, I want to begin by diving into the first of the five points, which is called total depravity. And here's how we're going to structure this today. First, I want to define it. Then I want to defend it. Define, defend. Define, defend. So first, let's define. What do we mean by that term, total depravity? Well, depravity simply means uh, corrupt. It means to be immoral, sinful, messed up in some ways. And so what the first point is saying is that mankind is totally corrupted by sin. Now, it's important to note, it does, that does not mean that he is utterly corrupted by sin, meaning that people are just as bad and as sinful as they could possibly be, that human beings are just brute savages running around carrying out every possible evil. That's not what this point is teaching. When, when it has that word total in front of it, total depravity, that word total is referring to our totality. In other words, every aspect of one's being is affected by sin. That, that in some, sin, sin permeates the core of our being. That there is not an aspect of you that isn't touched and therefore affected by sin itself. So sin affects your intellect. It affects your behavior. It affects your conscience. It affects your will. It affects your emotions. On and on and on and on. In other words, you could say we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Now, that's total depravity defined. It, it Again, every aspect of a human being's being is impacted and affected by sin. Let's defend it now. Let's look at the second thing. Let's defend it and... And we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture passages here. So if you have a Bible, please follow along. 
I, I really do think it's important that you see these passages for yourself in your own Bible, or feel free to take notes, jot these scripture references down, look them up later. But here's how I want to kind of organize this defense. I want to organize this under three headings. What does the Bible say about our heart? What does the Bible say about our ability? And what does the Bible say about our hope? Those are the three kind of subheadings under how we're going to defend total depravity. What does the Bible say about our heart, our ability, and our hope? First, what does the Bible say about our heart? Well, uh, the Bible describes you in the most fundamental sense, I guess you could say, as a heart. You know, in our culture, in our day and age, your heart simply means your emotions. But in the Bible, the heart is much more than your emotions. Your thinking, your choosing, your conscience, all of that is kind of tied up in what the Bible calls your heart. Who you are is what is in your heart. It's it's your commitments, it's your joys, it's your delights, it's your spiritual center of gravity. Here's how Proverbs 4.23 describes the heart. It describes the heart as the wellspring of life. So let's look at a couple passages. Uh, what does the Bible say about your heart? Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is before the flood. This is saying every inclination of mankind's heart is only evil continually. All right. Genesis 8, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now we have a passage after the flood, and it's saying the same thing, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his childhood. Ecclesiastes 9.3 This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. This is saying the hearts of men are full of evil. It's a fun way to think about yourself. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is saying the heart is deceitful. Your heart deceives you. The person who has lied to you the most in your life is you. This is telling us that the way in which we're viewing the world may not be the way that the world actually is. Mark 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is saying your number one problem is what is inside of you, not outside of you. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Hardness of their heart. Their heart won't soften, it won't repent, it won't look in any other direction. Titus 1, 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. It says their minds, their consciences are defiled. So, okay, here's the big point here. The heart is radically affected by sin. And therefore, as we just read, your behavior, your affections, your mind, your consciences, every aspect of you is defiled by sin. Now you might say, okay, Matt, this is all very depressing. In fact, let's go ahead and play some depressing background music to fit the mood here. Oh, this is that, yes, we're all sad now. So, okay, I get it though. Christians are always talking about sin and how messed up we are, how bad we need Jesus. Okay, why does this matter? Well, this is, I think this is huge because how you view and understand the nature and the impact of sin in your life, it has everything to do with your understanding of salvation. So let's look at the second big kind of idea here. What does the Bible say about our ability, our will? And we need to zoom in a little bit further because the million-dollar question for the Arminian-slash-Calvinism debate is this. How severely does sin affect our will, our ability to choose God? Because this raises that big old complicated issue of free will. And just to let you know, we're going to get into this a lot more in the next episode. But for now, let me just tell you, the Arminian side is going to say this. Sin does not so completely damage your will that you still can't choose him. And the argument goes, why would God command us to believe in him if we're unable to do so? That's kind of the Arminian side of things. The Calvinist is going to say, Sin has completely damaged your will so that you are unable to choose God unless God first changes the nature of your will. So we're going to look at a couple of passages, but to set this up, let me, uh, let me put it this way. I don't know if you remember when you were in elementary school, I, I feel like I have vivid memories of this happening at some point where you would raise your hand and you would ask to use the restroom, but you would say, excuse me, te- Miss teacher, whoever, can I use the restroom? And they would look at you and say, well, I sure hope you can. And they're trying to make the point, oh, you used the wrong word. And you says, oh, okay, may I use the restroom? And what they're doing is they're trying to make this point that the word may has to do with permission, but the word can has to do with your ability. Can you use the restroom? I hope so. So we're going to look at some more scripture passages about this issue specifically, and I want you to pay attention to how often this language of can is used, this ability language. So pay attention to that, and I'll try to emphasize it as I read. But here we go. 
Romans 8, 6 through 8. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. This is saying the sinful heart cannot obey God. Okay, why though? Uh, Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I don't know if you paid attention, but at the very beginning, Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says we're spiritually dead. You're dead in your transgressions. Now, think about this. Let's say that you come into my office and I'm laying there on the floor and I'm terribly sick and you call out to me and you're like, hey, go to Starbucks and get me some coffee because I just desperately want you to like me. I I drag myself out of my office and and down the street. I'm crawling down the street. And because Starbucks is just down the street for me, I'm, I'm able to crawl into the store and get you a coffee and bring it back to you. It's, it's hard. It's challenging. But I'm able to do it. But let's say that you were to come into my office and I'm laying there dead on the floor and you call out to me, hey, go get me a cup of coffee. You would get no response. Our fall into sin is like that. We are unable to respond to God's word. We are unable to obey because we can't. And we can't because according to Ephesians 2, we're spiritually dead. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is saying the natural sinful heart is not able to accept or understand spiritual reality on its own. It is absolutely dependent on God the Spirit to be able to understand it. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Again, talking about ability. You can't confess Jesus as your Lord without the work of God the Spirit. John 6, 44 through 45 and verse 65, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And he goes on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And he said, this is verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Three different times in those verses, Jesus says, you are unable to come to me unless the Father first draws you to me. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. 
This is talking about our ability to change our own sinful nature. And the next two passages kind of are hitting at the same idea. Job 14.4 says, Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. It's saying you don't have the ability to bring about purity from an impure heart. Matthew 7, 18 through 19. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Similar idea. Now, all of those verses seem to suggest that our fall into sin is so severe, it is so fatal, that we are unable to come to God on our own. So what about free will, Matt? Well, like I said, we're going to get into this a lot more next time, but let me just take a stab in passing here. Do Calvinists believe in free will? Well, yes and no. Yes, if by free will you mean that you are free to do whatever you want to do. The problem is all you want to do is live for yourself. A human heart, all all a sinful human heart wants to do is to sin. That's why the Bible also talks about us in terms of being slaves to sin. It has so affected our very nature that we can't not choose it. I mean, think of it like this. Let's say you have a hungry lion and then you put in front of that hungry lion uh, two, two plates of food, an option for him, a choice. On one plate, you have a big pile of Fruit Loops. And then on the other plate, you have a thick T-bone steak. It's a choice, right? You want to choose the Fruit Loops or the steak. Well, 10 times out of 10, the lion is going to eat the meat over the Fruit Loops because... Its nature affects what it freely wants to choose. So yes, I think I believe in free will, if you mean that you are free to do whatever you want to do. But no, I don't believe in free will, if by that you mean man is free to do as he ought to do, as he, as he should do. I don't think he's free to do as he should do, because he's hindered by the nature of his ability. This is like the illustration Jesus used in that last passage in Matthew 7. An apple tree is not free to produce oranges. It is bound by its nature. So last thing, uh, what does the Bible say about our hope? What does the Bible say about our hope? We've seen what does the Bible say about our heart? What does the Bible say about our ability? What's the hope here? Because if man is unable to become a Christian by his choices, by by an act of his will, then how will he become a Christian? How will he receive eternal life? Only if God does it. That's the first point of Calvinism. And so... Before we go into this further, 
uh, I, I just want to give you an appetizer of what really we're going to look at in the rest of this whole series. That if we're going to be saved, God is the one that has to come in and do all of the work. In, G, in, in John chapter 3, verse 3 through 8, I'm not going to read it all, but, but Jesus starts talking about being born again. He's talking with Nicodemus and he says, if you want to enter in the kingdom, if you even want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. And the image of birth that he is using, that's the image to describe the entrance into the Christian life. And you think about it, what role did you play in your physical birth? None. You, you were 100% passive. It was something that simply happened to you. This is why he says in verse 6 of John 3 that it's the spirit that gives birth to spirit. It's God's Holy Spirit that has to come in and, and birth you, as it were. In Ephesians 2, which we looked at earlier, it talks about us being dead in our transgressions. But in verse 4, playing off of that imagery, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God is the one that makes you alive. He does the work. You cannot make yourself become alive, but he breathes life into you by his spirit. Acts 16.14 says this, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opens her heart. It, her heart was closed. Her heart was dead. Her heart was sealed off. And the Lord comes in and opens it up. So the doctrine of total depravity shouldn't leave us insulted or offended or depressed, but it should open up new doors for gratitude and joy because it tells you, I can't save myself. I can't rescue myself. Someone has to rescue me. And what makes the gospel so good is that God does it. God rescues you. Now, I know this was a lot, and I know that this raises a ton of questions. And we're going to take up some of those questions next time later this week. But until then, 